Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Journalism is one of those weird professions that, technically, anyone could just go out and do. Especially in the age of Twitter... Reporting the news is as easy as pointing a phone, taking a picture, and posting online. So what does it even mean to call yourself a journalist in 2019? Which reporters are worthy of our attention? And what protections should they be given? I'm Keith Manconi. This is In-Depth. And that is a set of questions that's become even more pressing since the Fuhrer set off this past month by a police raid on the San Francisco home and office of freelance journalist Brian Carmody, following the leak of a police report into the death of San Francisco public defender Jeff Adachi. So today on the program, we're going to discuss that raid and take on those questions with some experts in the journalism field to find out just what this teachable moment has to teach us. So let's bring those journalism experts in. The first one up who's already snickering is uh, my colleague, KCBS reporter Jenna Lane, uh, whose beat keeps her firmly in San Francisco most days. Uh, welcome to the program, Jenna Lane. Thank you very much, Keith. Also welcoming onto the program, uh, James Wheaton. He's the founder and senior counsel at the First Amendment Project. That's a public interest law firm, and he teaches a seminar on journalism law. Uh, at UC Berkeley and Stanford. So uh, thanks, James Wheaton, as well. Well, thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to your legal insights on all of this. But uh, before we even get to that, I mean, there are so many ins and outs to this story. It's just kind of dominated San Francisco politics over the last several months. And it's pretty easy to lose track of what happened. So let's get our listeners up to speed. For those of them that have just not been following every twist and turn of this thing, let's make sure that we're all on the same page here. Jenna... This all started uh, with the very untimely uh, death of Jeff Adachi back in February. So Jeff Adachi's death in February was very unexpected. It was the sudden death of a relatively young and apparently fit public official, so it attracted a lot of attention. His uh, The place where he died, police uh, were called there. They took some pictures. They created a report about that scene, um, and then the unusually early release of that report to some local journalists caused in itself a whole different stir. Right. Yeah. People were uh, very uh, outraged by the leak. We both saw outrage on the part of Jeff Adachi's family as well as on the part of San Francisco leadership. And that led to an investigation into this leak. San Francisco police were under a lot of pressure to figure out where that leak came from. We know that it came from inside their department and we know where it went. Uh, One destination was to freelance journalist Brian Carmody. Another was to the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, But a few months later, San Francisco police asked Brian Carmody for his source inside their department. He declined to give it. And they returned several weeks later with sledgehammers 
and warrants and searched his home and his office and for that, that material. That's where some of that dramatic footage, uh, the image of uh, that we got on Carmody's home uh, security system of police coming to his front door. You can see those sledgehammers getting ready. And that started round two of controversy here. Right. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott later said of the sledgehammers, we know that looks bad. Mm, indeed it does. Uh, but really, the reason it looks bad is that this is the, the home of a journalist. Um, mm-hmm. You wouldn't it raised questions about whether San Francisco police would have brought the same set of equipment to the front doors of the San Francisco Chronicle and some speculation that perhaps one of the recipients of this leaked report was being targeted because of his freelance sort of independent status. He doesn't work for a big institution. He sells his work by the package. Right. So, okay. so a a long chain of events to keep track of there, but I think we're pretty much up to speed. And as Jenna said, it does raise some interesting questions. So let's raise those questions with our other guest here today, James Wheaton. James Wheaton, so when you hear about the series of events and that raid on uh, Carmody's home, what sort of red flags, legally speaking, does that raise for you? What does that make you think about in terms of uh, the legal justification for those warrants and for that raid? Well, the legal the legal red flags were enormous. Um, journalists are not supposed to be forced to give up their confidential sources, the names of their confidential sources. That's actually, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. It's actually in the California Constitution that mm-hmm. a journalist cannot be forced to give up the name of their confidential sources or their unpublished information in order that the free flow of information uh, will continue so that we, the public, can be informed. Because if the sources dry up, the news dries up. And so this is where we're going to throw in a little bit of legal jargon, uh, the shield law. So this is all, the, there, there is an actual law in place that is uh, protecting the sources of journalists? That's right. Uh, it was actually uh, voted upon by the voters uh, and quite overwhelmingly added to the California Constitution. In simple form, um, it's called the shield law. Um, it provides a privilege, as we lawyers say. Uh, just as I have one for my attorney-client communications, or doctors have it with their patients, priests uh, with their, their congregants, uh, there are certain areas that we say are simply off-limits to questioning. Off-limits to a subpoena for your testimony, and off-limits for a search warrant of your home or your, or your papers. And uh, journalists have that as well in California for their confidential information. And uh, in fact, the law that sets out kind of the rules for how you get a search warrant, it's kind of a little roadmap for police and prosecutors to follow. In that very statute, it says, and I quote, no warrant shall issue for any information that's covered by the shield law. It's not equivocal. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no no balancing test. It's just no warrant shall issue. So this warrant should never have been issued. And of course, uh, those warrants are still sealed, so we don't know exactly what the judges were considering when they made that decision. Uh, I, I, I presume, James, uh, you're going to be looking very closely at those warrants once they are released? Yeah, I'm supporting the uh, the efforts by a, uh, a companion organization of ours, the First Amendment Coalition, uh, which has gone into court as an amicus to ask that those the affidavits that supported the warrant that were presented to the judge to explain why they wanted the warrant, uh, to see what is in there, and I think more importantly, what's not in there, because that should be public. Normally, uh, by the way, uh, search warrants, uh, they're secret, of course they have to be, uh, until they're actually served and used, and then they become public. This is an odd case because the police have insisted on keeping it secret, um, which only, again, raises more red flags. And 
one of the questions that we'll be looking at closely is how much information were these judges given about Brian Carmody's profession? Was it represented to them that he was, in fact, a journalist or was he referred to in some other way? That is the big unanswered question. What were the judges told and were they told these people were journalists or not? Uh, I can tell you that I have done cases like this in the past on behalf of journalists who have been searched or their cameras have been searched. And in every one of those cases, the police simply, oops, we forgot to tell the judge that this was a journalist. Mm, can be difficult to remember sometimes. Now, actually, in this case, it's it's <laughs> particularly surprising because uh, a month before they went and got the search warrant, they went to Mr. Carmody personally and asked him to please would he tell them who leaked the report, and he correctly said, "I'm sorry, I can't do that." Um, so they knew he was a journalist. It was not a, an oversight. Well, and that raises another issue that uh, Jenna has opined on in the past is the fact that uh, Brian Carmody actually had a press pass issued by the San Francisco. Uh, police department. Yeah, it, he's held it for about 16 years. And it's not only that, there are a lot of people who hold San Francisco Police Department press passes who um, maybe don't interact too often with the police. But Brian Carmody is well known to mm-hmm. San Francisco police. His specialty is going to crime scenes, especially those in the middle of the night when other journalists are not awake mm-hmm. and uh, recording footage from from the scene. He's He's pretty well known to the police department. He certainly is. And uh, in this case, there's there's another oddity. Um, not only did the police department know he was a journalist, both personally and also because of his press pass, uh, but also they did not do something that they normally do and is required by San Francisco police policy, which is to go to the district attorney to say, we want to get a search warrant. This is the law enforcement purpose. We're doing it. Will you help us? Because, of course, the district attorney is the one that represents all of us, the people of the state of California, in going to court in criminal matters. They bypassed the DA completely here. Uh, and violated their own department rules to do it. So there's a pretty strong smell that they knew some, that what they were doing was not right. Now let's talk about the decision on the part of a journalist like Carmody. When you have that sensitive material, uh, the decision to sell it. Now originally, we were talking about uh, the, the story that we were getting from uh, police was that they suspected Brian Carmody of some kind of illegal theft of uh, sensitive information if that was a confidential report, is there any water to that claim? Is it, can police say, you know, this this is our information and you have no right to disseminate it? Uh, no. Uh, there's a series of cases from the both the United States and our state Supreme Court that so long as the journalist themselves doesn't you know, literally break down a door or hack into a computer or commit some other crime, um, if they receive information, even if the information is confidential, even if the person giving it to them is breaking a law in giving it to them, the liability stops the moment it gets to the journalist's hands, and they are free and constitutionally protected, actually, to have the information and to publish it. Uh, Under the Constitution, they can't be prosecuted for that. And I think that that's probably something that many of us wouldn't have necessarily known, and you, you saw that on display when elected officials in San Francisco, a lot of their ire was directed towards Brian Carmody, at at least initially. And so I I suppose this is an area that reporters and the general public could use a little bit of education on. Yeah, it's a tough one. And uh, in in these situations where you're standing up for the the First Amendment and the people's right to know, um, you really can't get yourself into the politics of who's leaking it, why they're leaking it, uh, to whose benefit, to whose detriment. I want to be clear that a journalist takes their information from wherever they can get it. Um, They're not supposed to show fear or favor. 
uh, or to involve themselves in the politics of why somebody is leaking something. That really isn't the, the journalist's concern. Um, and I want to be clear, leakers leak for all kinds of reasons, and not all of them are pretty. Not all of them are simply to inform the public. Sometimes they have agendas. Um, but that's not the journalist's concern. The journalist's concern is, is it true? Is it important? And do people need to know it? Mm. Now, Jenna Lane, you're a little bit more hooked into the San Francisco journo circles uh, than I am. What has been the reaction to all of this? Has uh, I imagine there's been a lot of concern from this episode. Sure. I mean, there has been a, a refresher course in the Shield Law, which mm-hmm. is always um, beneficial. I think, too, there has been... Uh, a lot of question about, again, why raid one journalist that received this information and not a big newspaper that also received the information. So a quest- questions about sort of who is a journalist and what is journalism and what qualifies. Uh, I always welcome those conversations because um, I think that what we... the, the the work of news gathering is sometimes obscured by the product, right? And so when people are interested in the process that leads up to a story being published or broadcast or whatever, uh, of course, I think it's great to to have those conversations and, and mm-hmm. engage in those. But yeah. um, It's something the law has also struggled with because, you, as you pointed out at the top of the show, uh, you don't need a license to be a journalist right. like you do to be, for instance, a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there, there, there's no state bar for, for journalists. Anyone can do it. Um, and the, and uh, over and over again, the course, said, we're not going to license journalists. We're not going to be in that business. However, they are called upon to ask the question, well, then who is covered by the shield law? Who is a journalist? And mm-hmm. the courts have had to answer that question. And they've done it, interestingly, by rejecting who you work for, uh, what kind of journalism. Uh, they've specifically rejected respectable journalism as opposed to tabloid journalism. Um, they've said there's really not a line sometimes between entertainment and journalism. We're not going to draw it that way. And what they've come up with is actually a pretty simple working definition. A journalist is someone who goes out and collects information about something other than themselves. They package it or put context around it, write a story about it. They may include the actual documents that they got leaked, but they in some way process the information. It's not just a data dump. And then third, they publish it, broadcast it, put it on the web to an eager audience that's, that wants to receive it. So you gather information, you process it, and you publish it. That's journalism. Um, and that's what Carmody did here, uh, or Carmody, rather. Uh, there's been some suggestion he was, quote, selling the police report, and that's apparently not accurate. What he did is what he always does. Um, whenever he's, for instance, covering you know, a late-night fire or a, a burglary scene or a, you know, any kind of police investigation, he gets the documents. He did some footage himself, apparently, of the, the, the apartment where Mr. Adachi passed away. Um, he did some reporting, included the, the document, um, the police report, which is what you do, and he packaged that, and then he was uh, paid for his, his labor and his efforts by those uh, news outlets that wanted to get it. It's pretty standard stuff for what we call a stringer in the business. Mm-hmm. People who don't work for a particular organization, but they, they go out, they gather news, uh, you know, often when other people are not there, they're kind of everybody's eyes and ears, and then they package it and they sell it. Um, they get paid a small amount, and they go on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, I'm selling my services right now. I'm oh earning, an, earning an hourly wage as we speak for 
creating this journalism that people are going to listen to on KCBS. Right? Well, we can look back in history. Let me be a little professorial. I believe it was uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, who back in the 1700s, who said, no, nobody but a blockhead ever wrote for any reason other than for money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that, that, that journalists sell their, uh, their wares, uh, their, their work, um, does not deprive them of the privilege of keeping things secret. Just as the fact that I charge for my service as a lawyer doesn't mean that I don't have a privilege and I'm required to keep my clients' confidences secret. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the major stories and trends shaping the news we report on every day here. Today, we're examining the fallout from the raid on the home of a freelance journalist in San Francisco. Helping us out is James Wheaton, the founder and senior counsel at the First Amendment Project, and KCBS reporter Jenna Lane. Do you think it's a useful way to think about the shield law as protecting the act of news gathering and not specific individuals? I think that is a good way to think of it. And it it actually illustrates um, an interesting thing about the privilege for journalists. The other privileges I mentioned, like attorney client or doctor patient, those are to protect an individual, you know, individual client to, you know, talk to their lawyer or patient to talk to the doctor. And that's protecting their self-interest. The privilege for journalists isn't to protect journalists, it's to protect us. It's to ensure that they have a free flow of information so that our ability to get the news is protected. So it's an odd privilege in that it's not for individuals. It's really for the news gathering process so that the outcome of that is that we're better informed. Well, Professor Wheaton, while you have your professor hat on and we are teaching a little bit of the ins and outs of uh, the do's and don'ts of what journalists can and can't do, uh, you know, we just brought up this press pass issue. What of... Uh, press passes in, you know, relatively hectic situations. What should journalists know about when they are in that Occupy Wall Street moment or when they're in that disaster moment and a police officer is telling them to move? How should a journalist react? Yeah, no, it, 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 maybe you may not realize that in order to do their jobs, journalists have to have access to places and events that most of us do not, such as accident scenes and crime scenes and so forth. Um, and so, for instance, San Francisco Police Department issues press passes to people so they know who are the press that can stay at an accident scene, for instance. Um, But I tell my students, you know, the law can protect you only so far, but if you're out there in the moment, uh, if somebody comes up to you and they got a badge and they got a gun and they got handcuffs, you're going to follow their direction, whatever it is. all, you know, I think if somebody, a wise person once says, be brave, but don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and Jenna, this kind of highlights uh, a point from your own personal experience. Press pass doesn't always make a difference. Not always. No, I, I once was detained for a couple of hours. This is the only time I've ever missed a live toss from one of my anchors. We go now to Jenna Lane. <laughs> and it was, and sorry. <laughs> it was all muffled because I was being cuffed. Um, Handcuffed so abruptly you couldn't even hang up the phone, let your <laughs> editor know I'm being arrested. The timing was exactly there. Right at the top of the hour, they That's executed amazing. this raid on a building that was being occupied by Occupy protesters, where I was conducting interviews and prominently displaying my pink San Francisco Police Department press pass. But in a moment like that, their job is to round up everyone, and they will sort out the rest later. And you were rounded up. I was rounded up, and it took them two hours to sort it out. <laughs> Veteran journalist right here. I love it. 
All right, so switching gears a little bit. Up till now, we've been focusing on the legal ramifications of all this, especially the legal implications from the perspective of the investigators. But let's talk a little bit about whether or not we should report this kind of news and take that from the perspective of the journalists. Uh, help us out with that question. We have on the phone right now Richard Craig. He is a San Jose State professor of journalism and mass communication. So uh, welcome to the show, Richard Craig. Yes, hi. So the question that I want to put to you, let's I, I feel like there's kind of two different questions right here. There was the an initial decision to collect this police report on the part of Brian Carmody and uh, then pass it on to newsrooms. And then there was the decision by newsrooms to report or not report that uh, information. So let's start with Carmody's decision. What do you make of the decision by a reporter to leak a report such as this that gave details very shortly after the death of Jeff, Jeff Adachi? Well, I mean, part of the role of journalists is basically to put information out there if they perceive anything like you know deception or, you know, um, basically to, to set the record straight. And Sometimes that involves difficult ethical calls on your part. If you if you see something's being put out there by official sources that seems to be hypocritical, seems to be only telling part of the truth, and you come across something like this, maybe it's a way to, to sort of set the record straight. It's a way to say, this is what you're not hearing from other sources. It's, it's sort of an extension of the watchdog role that uh, the journalists like to think of themselves as playing. Then the other side of that, though, I mean, when, when I first started out uh, my career in journalism, one of the very first pieces of advice I got from somebody who had been in the industry for much longer than me uh, is he said, you know, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is to minimize harm. And that struck me as kind of a, a weird piece of advice because uh, you don't generally think of journalism as doing harm. But, you know, in, in any given situation, you have decisions about what part of the story you're going to include. Do you include that person's name or not? Do you include the worst quote that they have or not? There's a lot of decisions that you can make in how you form the story. And somewhere in that equation, I think, should be the harm that the story could potentially cause. So how do we balance uh, that set of considerations when we have something sensitive like a report such as this? It's a really hard question to answer because every situation is different. You need to stop and think about basically what are we trying to accomplish by putting this out there? Are we trying to set the record straight? Are we trying to say this is you know what public perception is and this is erroneous? But you do have to consider you know what's the consequences going to be. I mean, we always talk in my classes among my journalism students about. You know, you have freedom of speech, but not freedom from consequences, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, it's going to be case by case, and, you know, every journalist is going to sort of weigh the different uh, impacts uh, in their own particular way. I agree. I think it is case by case. And uh, in this particular case, um, I think that our listeners, or the Bay Area news consumers, can be trusted to put in context sort of the motives behind the unusual leak of this type of information um, and to decide for themselves, you know, on its um, on its value. But when you're talking about an elected official who dies suddenly, inquiry into that death is n not only justified, I think it's it's necessary and expected. Yeah. Also, if you look at the, the details of this one, um 
police reports, uh, you know, when police respond to a potential crime scene or just any incident at all, that's actually normally a public record. This is not some big state secret. Um, I don't particularly see any harm here other than perhaps some embarrassment or something to the family. But you know, for someone who's a public official, embarrassment goes with the job. So I, I just don't understand what the other side would be here in terms of harm. I just think it was unusual how early it came out. Of course. You know, usually you see that sort of detail in an autopsy or, you know, a, a more thorough report. Yeah. Well, I mean, the harm side would be the sensitivities of the family and, and uh, city leaders. But I, 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 I take your point that uh, when it is a matter of a public official and a matter of public record, it's a different set of considerations that need to be uh, brought to bear. Uh, to close out the show, because we are coming up on the end of things, I, I do want to kind of broaden our lens a little bit to uh, just take a look at uh, the particular moment that we are in as a nation, and both in terms of how we're treating journalists and how uh, we're understanding the role of journalists. And uh, to close things out, I want to toss things once again to uh, Richard Craig. I mean, what do you take away from this whole episode as the public's general awareness of the role of journalists and maybe what we should understand better? Well, the public doesn't necessarily have a very good um, perception of what journalists do, and some of that has to do with, uh, you know, spinning from different, you know, official sources, whether it's the White House or anyone on down. Some of it has to do with the fact that they have their own lives to lead. You know, when you're in journalism or you teach it like I do, you think about all of these things. You think about the implications, and you think about the fact that journalists are really the only way to hold public officials, uh, you know, uh, accountable for whatever they do with your tax money or, or anything like that. Um, so the gap between how journalists perceive what they do and its importance in society versus how the public sees it is quite a large gap. And I think in journalism, we need to do a better job of, of kind of explaining to the general public why what we do is important. All right. And uh, to Last question to close things out. I want to toss things over to uh, James Wheaton. You know, you've been looking at these First Amendment issues for a number of years. You've been uh, defending people on First Amendment grounds for a number of years. Do you have the sense that uh, the threat to journalists is greater than it has been in the past? Well, journalism has always been something that the public loves to hate. Hmm. Um, we're all, in a way, news junkies. Um, everybody, you, know, you either have the newspaper, the radio, your local TV, you know, your, 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 whatever you've got on, on Facebook or other social media. We're all hungry for information. Um, but we don't always admire or support the people who get it to us. Um, and we so, blame the messenger. Well, of course, of <laughs> course. And, well, I, you know, I'm a lawyer talking about journalists, probably the two <laughs> least favored professions <laughs> in the world. Um, but... Uh, these are particularly perilous times. Um, we have a president who is dredging up a phrase, the enemy of the people, which has been used by dictators and tyrants for decades. Um, and he is adopting it as his own. Um, the attacks on media, uh, not only by him, but by others, his attacks on media at his own rallies. Um, and it, what it's done is unleashed others to do the same. And I, I have no doubt that there's a certain amount of feeling of justification by the police uh, who executed this raid. Like, it's okay because journalists are fair game. Um, so it is a dangerous time. Um, but let's remember, it, it's always been dangerous for journalists um, to do what they do. Going all the way back to our second president, uh, Adams, put journalists in jail who supported his rival, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he put 25 of them on trial and put 11 of them in prison 
for criticizing the president. Uh, so it's always been a perilous business. It is, a, it is quite a bit worse now in that respect. Um, but thank goodness the First Amendment still stands. Jenna, anything else you want to add? To... Thank goodness the First Amendment still stands. All right. <laughs> That's all I can, nothing else I can say. And we'll, uh, we'll let that be the final statement for this program, a very fitting final statement. Uh, we're going to thank our guests before we wrap things up. Uh, first of all, thank you to KCBS reporter Jenna Lane, uh, our favorite enemy of the people. <laughs> Always a pleasure. <laughs> also want to thank uh, James Wheaton, who once again is the founder and senior counsel at the First Amendment Project. Uh, thank you, James Wheaton. Oh, you're very welcome, but thank you. And one final thank you to Richard Craig, who just joined us on the line. He is the San Jose State Professor of Journalism and Mass Communications. Thank you, Richard Craig. Yeah, you're very welcome. Remember, you can find past editions of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi, and I'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.